Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by Sarah Bay Jung of York University in Toronto. Sarah, let me uh, just begin by saying congratulations. I saw that the Toronto Raptors won a very exciting game against the Boston <laughs> Celtics in overtime yesterday. That must feel great. It, it does. Um, it was hard to play five on eight, but somehow we succeeded. So <laughs> go Raps. Go Raptors. Um, I am joined also in, in classic style uh, by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, let me just start by offering condolences. I saw that the Boston Celtics lost a nail-biter of a game <laughs> to the Raptors in overtime yesterday. That must be kind of tough. Well, they have Drake. <laughs> true. Drake on the they sidelines, have, Drake rooting for you, Drake, you know, as an ownership team, you can't beat Drake. That's that's you, the you cannot beat Drake. That is that yes. truer words were never said. OVO, baby. Uh, today on the podcast, we have three topics that we're very excited to get into. Um, we revisited a set of short essays published in Yale Theater Journal in 2001 uh, that includes a provocative talk that David Saverin presented at the previous year's Aster about the direction of the field of theater and performance studies and responses from Joe Roach, Janelle Reinholdt, Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, and others. We reread this uh, sort of time capsule of the field from 20 plus years ago, and I'm very much uh, looking forward to seeing what Harvey and Sarah think of it now. We are also very happy to welcome Dr. Molly Flynn of Birkbeck University of London to the podcast to talk to us about theater in Ukraine for our second topic. Um, Dr. Flynn has recently published a book about documentary theater in contemporary Russia, and in recent years, she's been researching the way Ukrainian theater companies have responded to Russian aggression and invasion since the Maidan Revolution of 2013-2014. Uh, we'll ask her to share her knowledge about Ukraine and the state of theater uh, there with us. Finally, we watched Station Eleven, the series on HBO Max that envisions a world devastated by a pandemic through the eyes of artists and in particular Shakespearean actors. Before we turn to our first topic, I'd like to give a land acknowledgement for the episode. I'm recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Missouri tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded these lands by treaty under threat of obliteration by the U.S. Army. So I'd like to acknowledge this history, and I also thank the Buder Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. And I'd like to encourage listeners to learn more about the territory where they live. So first up, Choices Made and Unmade, uh, the, the title of an essay published by David Saverin, uh, which had been a talk at Aster that he gave, I believe, in Aster 2000, and then was published along with several responses from leading figures in the field um, in uh, uh, the Yale School of Drama's journal Theater in 2001, along with uh, another short response by Saverin to the responses. Um, when I read these pieces recently, I thought we have to talk about this on the podcast. Um, and I'll say that I, I came across this, um, uh, I did not know about it. I had not heard of this exchange 
Um, but uh, my uh, colleague and partner, Paige McGinley, and I are both reading Bourdieu for different reasons related to our research. And Bourdieu figures uh, centrally in, the, in, in Savarin's essay. Uh, so, so Paige brought this to my attention and I thought, oh my gosh, we have to, we have to talk about this. I think it's so fascinating. Um, so I have, I want to give listeners a, a sort of summary of what David Saverin says in the first essay, but I'm curious, um, Harvey and Sarah, were you familiar with this? Had you read it? Were you, did you see it at, at Aster? Were you aware of this at all? Because this, it was, I confess, I was actually, uh, I did not know that this exchange had happened. Well, well I remember the, the conversation right? Like the buzz of, you know, what's happening with performance studies, what's the future performance studies uh, compared with theater as a, as a discipline and the anxiety, let's put it that way, uh, that, that, that existed. If I remember correctly, my first conference was ASTR in 99. I think it was actually the 99 conference uh, that this was presented in, but I have no memory oh, okay. of this address. <laughs> you know, I have no memory of this address at all. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what it is, but it's been great to revisit the conversation. Sarah, what about you? So my first Aster was, was 2001, um, and I can't remember where I was for the 99. So, so I, I missed this in its original buzz, and I thought when I started reading it that it was new, and maybe it's just that I've heard echoes of this for so long that I, I and this will tie into other topics in this episode, but I can't remember if I remember this or I just remember a lot of things that remembered this. So it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, it's a really, it was really interesting to revisit it because it feels so embedded in the field, even if, we have, even if you haven't encountered it directly. Yeah, that, that was part of my response as well, which is that this debate seemed, it doesn't seem 20 years old. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of it which is generational, which is the coterie of scholars responding are sort of self-identified boomers who find themselves now at the head of the field and in sort of administrative positions. Um, uh, but in certain ways, it seems like, oh, this is something that I, I thought was a sort of ongoing or, or, or current debate. It, it turns out it's actually quite, uh, quite a bit older than that. So for readers who hadn't have not encountered this before. I just want to summarize for the purposes of the discussion what Saverin says in this speech. And Harvey, Sarah, if I miss things or if there, you know, if I get something wrong, feel free to, to interject and, and correct. So Saverin makes a somewhat polemical observation about the way the field is evolving from his perspective as a baby boomer theater scholar who went to graduate school in the late 70s, early 80s. And he begins by noting several developments, which he sort of interweaves and and makes seem as part of a sort of broader phenomenon. Um, he notes, first of all, that he has witnessed post-structuralism overtaking English departments and then later making inroads into theater studies. Notably, he observes that in his own case um, and for the field at large, these sorts of theoretical inspirations, and he cites Derrida, Foucault, and Lacan, especially Foucault. Foucault looms large here. Um, that these sort of theories not only displace interest in Marxist, in the Marxist tradition, but actively critique and work against um, some aspects of Marxist theory and interpretation of theater. So the sort of multi-methodological and deconstructed ethos of the 1990s resists grand theories in general, including historical materialism. And he, he, he airs out this sort of narrative of disaffected leftists 
joining academia and becoming trend hopping sort of leftist leftish professionals. Um, so there's this sense of a, a sort of shift in left political energy from the political sphere into academia. Second, he notes the simultaneous rise of identity politics as the dominant mode of leftist academia. He credits this with the success of women's studies and African-American studies departments being created in the 1980s, followed by Asian-American studies, queer studies, and other more recent uh, disciplinary and field formations. Um, he says that literature departments are sort of morphing into cultural studies programs, and he sort of characterizes all of this as a huge shakeup of humanities disciplines. And it's within this context that he makes the sort of third observation, which is about the partial displacement of theater studies by performance studies, which he narrates as a sort of Oedipal reversal, right? The the old, uncool, historicist uh, theater father being murdered by its his rebellious and innovative offspring. And sort of the the provocative and indispensable pull quote here is that he says, you know, according to the spirit of the times, performance studies, quote, can help you overcome all that anxiety about working in an old-fashioned marginalized field, throw away that tweed jacket, ditch the antiquarianism, unpack that t-shirt and jeans and start mixing tropes, cruise East Village bars <laughs> in search of performative identities, hang out with Judith Butler. Um, and from this follows a sort of critique with several planks. Um, he gives this, and I think it may be um, it may be Jill Dolan who in her response identifies, or no, no, I think it might be Ellen Diamond actually who identifies a sort of tone of regret, right? That the way that Saverin narrates this is by these sort of, you know, lamentable things that have, that have come with the transformation. He says that performance studies is, you know, partly propelled by a desire among scholars to stay at the cool kids table in the academic lunchroom. It's close affiliation with queer studies, I believe he argues, is, is facilitated in part by the fact that both performance as a theoretical concept and sexual identity are receiving a kind of deconstructive impulse and being portrayed for that reason as destabilizing uh, phenomena, unending citations with no original, etc. He finally observes that Victor Turner has pointed performance studies away from class and anti-colonial struggle toward a somewhat Kantian apolitical aestheticism and notes Turner's uh, a sort of uh, published and overt um, uh, sourness on um, Marxism in general. So out of this, the big result that worries him is a sort of impoverishment of our field's notion of the social. Um, and, and there are several places in which he sort of identifies that, I think, with a, a Marxist analysis. So there's an attenuation of class analysis, a sort of obliviousness about or even contempt for historical materialism. Um, and in the most pointed part of the essay, I think he suggests that his generation is on the point of sublimating the revolutionary impulses of the 1960s and convincing itself that textual radicalism is a substitute for political radicalism. Um, so he sort of suggests that there needs to be a deeper engagement with Marxist cultural theory, particularly Bourdieu. He mentions Raymond Williams in several uh, places and offers a kind of a quick analysis of, of the contemporary success of Rent um, as this, you know, now fabulously successful Broadway musical that originated in the um, uh, Lower East Side, et cetera. Um, so 
there's so much going on here that I found really fascinating and really interesting. I'm very curious to know what your impressions were reading this 22 years later. Well, if if I can jump ahead of Harvey and give an incredibly superficial and rather facile kind of uh, take, my, the first thing I thought was like, oh my gosh, it's slow academic Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's our Twitter exchange, but, but slowed down to the speed of, of talk and response and then response and then more response um, and published in a journal almost two years later. Um, yeah. And where, where uh, Saverin sees the concern of, of textual leftism, you know, we now have slacktivism. And, and it just, it's, it's what's so interesting, again, and it's more of a formal critique, which could not be more conservative and uninspiring in this particular political context um, is is that it's it's the very same kind of discursive formations that we now see, I think, akin to in social media, except they've gotten shorter and faster, and 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 with fewer citations. Um, probably for the sake of everybody's Twitter thread, uh, very good reason. Anyway, I was just, I was just really struck by, by the parallels uh, between them with, without meaning any disrespect to the folks represented here or the expansiveness and, you know, of the arguments beyond uh, 240 words, let alone 240 characters. But that was, that was my, my first take. Harvey, what about you? That was genius. That was a great first take. I love that. I mean, it's true. I mean, it's, it's the... The, the slow academic Twitter read is completely correct. You're reading it, and then there's a point in one of the responses where it refers to the, like, one of the contributors having had access to the text of the ASTR address from two years earlier. And you think, wow, like, there's a real slowness to this. And then it concludes with David Saverin responding to the responses, uh, and you just sort of think about, like, what's the durational quality, <laughs> you know, of, of mm-hmm. all this? Uh, I mean, all that being said, like, like I was saying, I think that um, what I find interesting about this, this exchange is it really captures this moment where uh, the field, at least for people we now identify as being kind of synonymous with the field, like Jill Dolan, Ellen Diamond, um, David Saverin, Joe Roach, right? Sort of these very senior, um, quite established uh, individuals are A, sort of trying to reconcile their sense of their newfound senior status. Like, what does it mean for them to to conceive of themselves as being leaders of the field back in 1999 or 2000, right? Sort of that that, that guard changing. Uh, But then also to see the field that they're leading now shifting. Uh, You know, so is it really theater? Is it performance studies? Will there be theater departments a generation from now? And that becomes the subtext, or not the subtext, the very official lead line uh, for Saverin's response uh, to these responses. So I found that quite interesting. Uh, but also you look mm-hmm. at it sort of 20-something years later, and, and, and for me, I was just kind of mired in this as a graduate student, <laughs> right? Because I, I went to Cornell for grad school where David Saverin went, where uh, Joe Roach went, where Marvin Carlson taught, right? So there was this generational sense of, you know, the training we had was aesthetic, was aesthetic theory. And, 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 and is there a shift away from that? So I found that part particularly um, interesting to me when I was as re- recalling my conversations as a student with Rebecca Schneider, you know, trying to talk about what does performance studies mean in that context mm-hmm. you know, against the history of theater studies uh, at Cornell at the time. 
you know, so it was like looking back in time for me and I found that worthwhile. But at the same time, you know, looking from our present day perspective, you can see that performance studies never sort of emerged in the way that people imagined it would emerge. Um, and that indeed there has been renaming here and there, uh, but uh, there has been a sort of an agreement to coexist uh, across a generation between theater and performance studies. Um, so mm -hmm. in some ways the forecast anxiety was a bit um, um, premature in terms of the alarmist nature of it. Panel, yeah, what do you think? These are, yeah, these are great responses. Sarah, the notion that this is slow Twitter, I think I totally agree. I hadn't thought of it in that particular way, but one thing that I thought was that we, I feel like we don't have these types of, uh, or we haven't had a big sort of field-wide reckoning of this type in a while, or that there's something about the generational quality of it where here's, you know, and these, uh, I'll mention as an aside that Erica Monk, who is editing the journal article, there's a piece that I didn't distribute to you guys where she talks about the origin of it. And she said that she sent the piece to several scholars and then several, um, I think, critics or theater artists to comment on. And that the scholars were all like, yes, 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 I'll, I'll write a response to this. And that the artists and critics were like, couldn't be, couldn't get engaged with it. So for her, part of it is the, the, the alienation of the scholarly discussion from the theater making community, right? Um, and Severin mentions the, uh, uh, the, I think he quotes Joe Roach saying how, you know, theater scholars don't really fit in the academy because we do dorky theater stuff and we don't fit in the world of professional theater because, and I'm quoting Joe Roach, we read books. Um, but <laughs> what was, what, you know, I think to return to your comment, Sarah, my sense is like, oh, why don't we have like a big sort of where are we now sort of field conversation like this? And you're right, because in a way that conversation is happening perpetually on Twitter, the sort of inter-left uh, debate space happens on social media. It's quick. It's not particularly deep. You know, it's, it's, I think the, this type of, you know, having a bunch of people who are all invested in the field sort of debate about what we're doing, what's happening, what are the implications of it is really, it would be nice to have, to have that again. Well, um, can I just, uh, can I just jump in and respond yeah. to that panel? Cause I, as you're talking, it occurs to me and I, this is not totally formed, but that our reckoning with the field is less and less about the content of the field than the class and social structures of the field. Yep. So there has been quite a lot of discourse yep. and reckoning in print, in social media around adjuncts, strikes, yep. Yep. labor, which in a way is much closer to the kind of activism that Savron is advocating, but yep. not through the mechanisms that he's thinking, which is through an investment and an engagement with theater studies and, and the discipline itself. It's actually become yep. our activism is now tertiary and about the, the formal labor structures that are required to sustain the discipline as opposed Absolutely. to investment in what it is that we are actually studying when we say we are studying theater or when we say we are doing performance studies. 
Right. I think you're absolutely right. There's a there's absolutely a revival of Marxist thinking and class-oriented thinking specifically about working conditions in academia. And that's also part of the perpetual and, conversation. And, and the theater. It's it yeah, and the theater. Absolutely. So it's totally true. I think I think that's absolutely true. And per, and perhaps something that wouldn't have been expected at that time. Um and uh uh Harvey, you know, the, the the sense of the prognostications about performance studies taking over theater departments. Absolutely. That's something that I think he I think that's in Saverin's response to the responses. Right. He's like, well, all the theater departments are now going to become performance studies departments within 10 years. It's all over anyways. Um, but that that hasn't happened. There is this kind of detente or a kind of, you know, composite field where these tendencies sort of coexist. Um, but nonetheless, I feel like there's a there's something about this, which is this community of, of senior scholars all responding to the same sort of questions and tracing those implications through the ideas and the scholarship. Sarah, that's in a way, that's the that's one of those differences, right, is that the, the conversation about the, the sort of existential question about the field is more oriented towards people's abilities to lo- live and thrive and produce something, not about what the new ideas are or what's being missed in our scholarship. Um I'll say this, there was something also where there's a, uh, Saverin says in passing at the beginning of his essay that he's going to decline to point out individual scholars because he doesn't want (laughs) to make it too personal. But it's also a quite polemic thing, right? And and Joe Roach's response is rather biting. I think there's some kayfabe there. I think Joe Roach being the writer he is, is enjoying, as is Saverin, a kind of public you know, a uh, bit of, of rhetorical pugilism and, and enjoying having a, a debate like this in public. But it was, it was striking to me that already there's this sense of like, these are my friends and colleagues. I'm not, you know, uh, on the one hand, I want to give a polemic talk and, and hold everyone to account. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want it to be too personal. So I'm, I'm part of the, conver- you know, I, I, I recognize I'm in an <clears throat> instance of the, of the tendencies that I'm critiquing, et cetera. Um, so, Anyways, well, hey, but, but, but just we quickly should, on that before well, we transition, yeah. I think that uh, for those, because I'm, I'm sure like every listener is going to, you know, race to JSTOR or whatever, to, you know, body holds this, I think it's, <laughs> you yeah. know, now. Uh, and there is real tension there uh, with uh, Barbara Kirsten Black Demblet's uh, response to David yes. Saverin, uh, you know, which is like, hey, yes. everything you're talking about, you know, has, has, um, like you're kind of going back in the past where you need to sort of read what's, what's contemporary within performance studies. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a brilliant and very sharp uh, retort uh, to say, well, mm-hmm. if you want to know what's happening, visit the NYU Performance Studies website <laughs> and check out the syllabi and read the current work. Uh, and, and that yeah. really, I think, in that moment, that's the sharpest moment of disagreement uh, because you felt yeah. um, sort of too, well, uh, one established tradition and one emerging performance studies tradition uh, back from a 20-year th- perspective, right, um, at odds yeah. and clashing. And I think you fast forward and you realize that, you know, there's been a, 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 a peace negotiation, <laughs> you know, that, is, that has occurred uh, so that right. sense of animosity doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but I encourage people to check out the, uh, the article yeah. and its responses. I think it doesn't exist. Well, I don't know that I agree it doesn't exist anymore. I think people are pretty private about their pet uh, grievances about each other's work and about trends in the field. I think that sometimes, you know, the, the uh, I don't know, the, the excesses of, of one or another mode of scholarship get some looks. I've been on the receiving end of some, I don't know, Jim Halpert stares in <laughs> our conferences um, uh, that were not spelled out and the debates and the sort of 
you know, criticisms were not happening in public. I agree with you that there were, we're not, we're sort of past a moment of like, what is the field and it, and, and, um, uh, but yeah, the, the, uh, Barbara Kirsch and Black Gimblet's response is pretty choice. Um, it's, it's worth reading. I really would recommend it to, to listeners. Um, uh, there's a lot in there and it's very illuminating. It's, it's one of those things where in graduate classes, um, I always teach that 1990 Richard Schechner Atha speech where he, you know, calls theater studies, the string quartet of the 21st century or whatever, but this is another and more recent and, and a kind of much more, uh, uh, Adam and, and holistic look at the set of ideas and debates that are happening around the turn of the century. So um, I'd recommend it. Um, we want to move now to talk about the, the war in Ukraine that is happening and the theatrical and arts um, background of this story. So on February 24th, Russia initiated a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. As, as we record this today, March 29th, 2022, the Russian efforts to capture Kyiv have stalled, but the strategically important city of Mariupol has been under heavy siege for weeks and is largely under control of Russian forces. The Russian tactics in this invasion have included devastating shelling and bombardment of civilian areas with a terrible loss of life of non-combatants. Um, tens of thousands of people uh, in Ukraine um, and thousands and thousands of uh, Russian military personnel have been killed, wounded. The, the destruction is just devastating. Um, currently, there are reports that a peace deal is being discussed in Istanbul, and there's some hope of a stop to the fighting, but nothing uh, concrete. So we've been interested in the way that this conflict is affecting artists, uh, both in Ukraine and internationally. Um, especially in Russia, where dissent and protest have been met with harsh punishment by the Putin regime. And so in that spirit, we are very grateful to Dr. Molly Flynn, a specialist in Russian and Ukrainian theater, uh, for joining us on this segment. Uh, welcome, Molly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Molly is a lecturer in theater and performance at Birkbeck University in London. She's the author of Witness on Stage, Documentary Theater in 21st Century Russia, published by Manchester University Press in 2019. Um, Molly, I know that you have recently been researching Ukrainian theater uh, in the context of Russian hostilities since 2013, 2014. I wonder if you would begin by talking to our listeners, what do you see as the sort of critical events or developments that one needs to understand um, of the last 10 years or so that help explain what the theater makers in Ukraine that you've been researching have been responding to? Absolutely. Um, so between November 2013 and February 2014, over 2 million Ukrainians took to the streets in defense of democracy, human rights, and economic transparency in the Euromaidan revolution, or what's known um, more colloquially as, as Maidan. These protests became, um, the protesters were, were increasingly brutalized as the months went on. And that violence reached a terrifying intensity in February 2014, when over 100 unarmed protesters were shot down by sniper fire in central Kyiv. The next day, Russia allied former President Viktor Yanukovych fled to Russia. Two weeks later, the Kremlin began the process of illegally occupying and annexing the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea. 
And the following month, Russia began funneling in both arms and troops into the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine in order to fuel a conflict between the Ukrainian army and a small group of radical separatists who were seeking to create two breakaway territories in the eastern region on the border with Russia. So that war, which started, or this war, which started in 2014, um, had already claimed over 14,000 lives and led to the displacement, primarily internal displacement, of over 2.5 million people before the full-scale invasion started on the 24th of February, 2022. Wow. Um, and so we're, you know, like most people reading the news, watching this conflict, hoping for an end to it, hoping for peace. Um, and... There have been some events around the um, around the world um, that show I don't know some of the involvement that theater as a sort of I don't know an instance an example of uh, cultural achievement diplomatic power um, has been involved. There have been some high profile resignations of of Russian artists in protest. Um, there was of course the the bombing of the drama theater in Mariupol on March 16th while it was being used as a, a shelter for um, uh, civilians. Uh, it's been reported that around 300 people were killed in that uh, bombing alone. One observer I saw uh, on Twitter, Katerina Bucheski, uh, brought up the point that this theater may have been targeted in part because it was a symbol of Ukrainian cultural nationalism. And that reminds us of the you know, significance of arts institutions in creating national identity, something that theater historians are very familiar with. Um, but you have been um, researching the, the activities of Ukrainian theater artists uh, in recent years. I'll, as, these, as this conflict, this, as this war has been happening, I wonder if you can give us a sense of, I don't know, a few of those companies that you've been looking at, what their missions are, their sort of artistic missions, and, and how their activities have been affected by uh, these hostilities. Yeah, absolutely. I would just to comment on the kind of targeting of Ukrainian cultural institutions. I think they're really, um, there is no doubt that key sites of Ukrainian cultural heritage are being targeted. For example, um, not far from Kiev, there was uh, was the Museum of Maria Primachenko, who's a, one of Ukraine's best known 20th century artists. And um, when the town was shelled, the museum was the first building to be targeted. So there are actually many examples in which um, we can see very clearly that uh, a destruction of of, of Ukrainian history and Ukrainian cultural heritage is part of the, the intended violence against Ukrainian sovereignty. As far as my research goes, um, I have had the great pleasure of working with and, and writing about several remarkable Ukrainian theater companies uh, that have developed particularly since the Maidan revolution. One of those companies was the, it's called the Theater of Displaced People. And this was the company that first drew me into the study of Ukrainian theater. As you mentioned, panel, my book was about um, documentary theater in 21st century Russia and how the form of documentary theater has developed in those specific cultural and historical circumstances. And it was through that interest in documentary theater that I became um, 
in, engaged both as a, as a volunteer and as a collaborator and as a researcher with this group called the Theater of Displaced People that was founded in 2015. It was founded by a Ukrainian playwright named Natalia Varishbit and a German director named Georg Genot. And together they assembled this team of theater makers who um, traveled around the country, but primarily in the eastern region, close to the front line in the Ukrainian controlled cities. And they worked with different demographics of people, uh, some, some actors, some artists, but also journalists, um, soldiers. They did a lot of work with teenagers as well uh, in order to bring people together and facilitate a kind of dialogue through um, the, the genre of documentary theater, but more specifically the subgenre of witness theater in which people are telling their own stories on stage. So one of their projects, for example, included um, a series of performances called Children and Soldiers, where they worked in four different frontline cities. They invited teenagers to come and uh, speak with soldiers who were stationed in their towns. And even though these people were living in the same towns, there were uh, not that many opportunities for them to speak to one another, and there was a real kind of division between them. So they invited these two groups of people to come together to share their stories, their experiences of the war and of the revolution. And through that process, they built a performance in which the soldiers were on stage with local teenagers telling their stories together for uh, a public audience. And these kinds of projects seemed to me really at the time to be at the forefront of what what documentary theater makes possible in its capacity to create the conditions for people to speak to one another, to hear one another, and to work together to construct the kinds of narratives that they want to see in their lives and to um, gain agency over those stories through the process of storytelling. So that's one sort of artistic project. Was this a pre-existing collaboration or was this sort of formed... Uh, directly out of the uh, responses to the Maidan revolution? This company was uh, founded in 2015 in direct response to the war. Um, another, if I may, another project, um, related project that included some of the same people um, that I had the opportunity to participate in was a, um, a series of playwriting workshops for teenagers that was modeled on a, a project called Class Act that runs at the Traverse Theater in Edinburgh that started in the 1990s and was adapted, has been adapted for a few different cultural circumstances and was adapted for this one specifically. Um, for this project, it ran for three years annually and each year brought uh, 10 students from a school in Eastern Ukraine and 10 students from a school in Western Ukraine together to Kiev for um, 10 days of playwriting workshops in which they were paired together to write these short plays and the short plays were staged in a gala performance by Ukraine's most renowned theater makers and, and TV stars at the end of the, at the end of the 10 days. And um, one of the things that I found particularly fascinating about this program, I mean, in some ways, when you describe it, it sounds like, oh, yeah, it's a youth writing program, right? Not necessarily something so remarkable about it. But what it did was... Um, it not only brought these students together from different parts of the country so that they could get to know one another and they could dispel stereotypes about one another, but it also facilitated a way for Ukraine's creative community to feel engaged in the process of making theater that can make a difference in the country. And I think this is one of the things that has been so fascinating for me about the study of Ukrainian theater since the Maidan revolution is the extent to which Ukrainian theater makers decided 
to build the projects, build the narratives, build the society in which they wanted to live. And uh, we can watch the mechanics of how that process developed. And it seems to me that those types of programs, in addition to many other programs, of course, are directly connected to the kind of um, remarkable resilience and resistance that we're seeing in Ukraine now. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Please, Sarah. No, I, I as you're talking, and thank you so much for this, Molly. I, I think for many of us, it's really helpful to have an inside perspective and an, and some additional insights to 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 trace some of the the history and the and and the meaning and understand what's happening in in artistic communities there. I I think I'm I guess one of my questions is that. It, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the optimism that that many of us continue to ascribe to the events that are happening in Ukraine, and and I'll just speak personally to to really cling to every story of resilience and resistance as as if it were the dominant narrative, even if it if it actually may not be right. And I'm getting all of my information through all the same kinds of you know, mainstream media sources that are subject to some of those concerns. Um, but I but I am really struck by your last comment about how one can trace the the seeds of that in in the arts and in a very particular kind of what in another context we might call very simply a community engaged arts practice. And and I and I'm wondering if if that is um, how durable that feels in this moment from your perspective and perhaps also from the perspective of, of those in the country. So does that, and I'm, I'm thinking too about the, uh, I recently screened, we screened here the, the film Maidan from 2014. And so looking at the footage of people really gathering in these performative performance displays simply for the activity of being together in in time and space and to to make a, a kind of statement do you see that is there a reason for optimism in this or um, what what does it look like from your perspective and perhaps also from from the perspective of folks in the country from my experience there is no doubt that the people in the country are the most optimistic ones I think that there is an unending commitment to resistance from the Ukrainian side. And um, those, those who are, those people who I know who are in Ukraine still are either um, fighting in the territorial defense units, which are these kind of local militias, um, or uh, working on humanitarian aid or um, uh, working as a, a journalist, fixers, photographers. I'm not aware of any um, theater. Oh no, actually I am aware. There are, yeah, there is theater happening. It, it, the resilience is there, it is happening. And I'm also involved with a number of projects um, with Ukrainian theater makers who have left the country or are in Western Ukraine, which is relatively more safe at the moment. Um, and there are so many international initiatives that they have initiated um, to raise money, to build solidarity, and to raise the profile of Ukrainian voices and Ukrainian theater and to um, bring forward 
this incredible work that has been developing locally for so many years and to share that with the world. Yeah, I have a question related to just the 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 attack, right? The destruction of cultural institutions and buildings and um, you know places where one grounds a sense of identity. Uh, and what I'm wondering is, uh, and and this comes from a person who I I do not have a background or uh, any expertise at all, <laughs> you know, in, in Ukrainian theater. Uh, but what I'm wondering is, uh, in your research uh, and your studies and and your knowledge, how like comparatively speaking, so like how widespread uh, and and how ingrained in terms in uh, in terms of being rooted in a material building is sort of artistic and creative culture, right? So, you know, when you hear about the loss of this building or that building, you can imagine sort of you know the you know like the equivalent elsewhere in other cities. Well, would it be would it be would it be like to lose that church or to lose that you know that cultural institution? Um, is it a case where Ukrainian theater? has emerged uh, at a national recognizable level within Ukraine, within these venues, or has it always been somewhat um, a series of companies that are um, a bit more itinerant, you know, that have been producing, you know, in festivals outdoors. So therefore, there's a sense of resilience that can occur uh, despite the construction, uh, despite, the, despite the destruction that's occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that, um, I mean, in the case of the Mariupol Drama Theater, the the space the building was very significant within the local you know within the city within the area as um a central point within the city so beyond even doing theater there right it is representative of um of what the city how the city works what the space is uh, and in that sense the specifics of the building are quite important most of the work that i am focused on would fall more into the second category that you're describing, um, which is more uh, grassroots, community-engaged work that is developing in really interesting ways alongside the state theaters, right? So Ukraine has a kind of state theater system as all of the former Soviet countries do for the most part. Um, and those are, yeah, those are these big, you know, each, each city has its big theater. People go to these theaters. And what's been interesting, actually, is the way that this kind of younger generation of theater artists or, the, you know, theater artists who have become more socially active since the Maidan Revolution have also started sort of infiltrating that state academic theater system. And we can see that, in fact, a lot of those repertoires, which were previously maybe not the most politically engaged or um, aesthetically experimental or, you know, they actually have come to include some really incredible performances by many of the most exciting and innovative theater artists that are kind of growing up in this generation of work. Molly, I'm curious to know, I mean, I want to see if I can formulate this question in a productive way. Um, when I was doing the research for gathering the readings for our first topic, I was looking at other editions of Theater Magazine from 2000, and they did another issue um, edited by Erica Monk um, on theater and war. And in her editorial note for that issue, she mentioned her experiences in Sarajevo, where during the long and bloody and destructive siege of Sarajevo, there were theater artists who were continuing to make work even as the conflict went on. Um, she mentioned that there was a sort of different kinds of response from the responses from the public. On the one hand, lots of people wanted to be part of it. They wanted to see it. They felt like this was, um, 
you know, a, a vital continued human activity that they needed to be part of in this trying time. And she said there were other people who uh, responded with disbelief. Why are you pretending like things are normal? Why are you putting energy into making theater when there are other things that we need to do to take care of people? And given now that the war has been going on for uh, more than a month, uh, it's it seems to be at a terrible pace, very destructive. People are fleeing or concerned with their day-to-day wellness. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, about the theatrical activity that is ongoing or maybe planned in the near future. Um, do you get a sense that people are just actively responding to their own safety and the, and caretaking uh, of people or fighting? Um, or And do you think that... Uh, these collaborators that you've been um, describing that they're going to want to be in creative activity soon. Do you feel like there's some sort of tension going on? Do you hear from your sources in Ukraine about uh, attention to sort of return to creative activities versus the the day-to-day needs of living in wartime? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that by and large, the people that I am in touch with who are in Ukraine are mostly engaged in yeah, either kind of day-to-day survival, humanitarian aid. There's lots of stories about artists welding these um, anti-tank structures. You may have seen pictures of these mm-hmm. kind of crossed pieces of metal. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of theater artists who are running, you know, kind of refugee housing in theaters. Most all of the state theaters, essentially, in the in the towns that are under attack, are now housing for refugees. It was not only in Mariupol. Um, They are, from my experience, mostly focused on humanitarian needs. There's also a group of theater makers, some of whom are still, some are still in Ukraine, some are in Poland, who have organized this really incredible effort to collect money and distribute this medicine to elderly people and vulnerable people throughout the country. So by and large, that is the focus for now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. However, there are some other initiatives that are worth mentioning. Um, there was this, another, another major development in Ukrainian theater recently has been the founding of the Theater of Playwrights, which is Ukraine's first democratically run playwright-centered theater. And the group was founded by 20 playwrights in 2020, and they have been working to um, fundraise and prepare for the opening of their dedicated theater venue, which they opened in Kiev in December 2021. Um, And of course, less than three months later, they have temporarily closed the doors of the venue because of the invasion. However, um, there has been really incredible international support for this group to support them and to try to kind of get their work out there and to commission new works from them. So, for example, um, I have been working with a Ukrainian playwright named Anastasia Kosady on a collection of short texts that she's commissioned from this group of playwrights about their experiences in the first week or two of the invasion. And those texts will be staged at several theaters in Germany, where she now is, and also at the Royal Court Theatre in London um, at the end of this week. So there are certainly efforts to continue working and to document this time through writing and through performance, but undoubtedly humanitarian aid and ending the invasion is the first priority. One more question, and, um, you know, you um, shared with me that you've translated a statement written by a prominent playwright 
in Ukraine. Uh, is it Natalia Vorozbit? Vorozbit. Vorozbit. Thank you. Um, and we, you know, don't yet have her permission to read this statement or share it on our website. Though we may share it on our website if we get that permission. Um, but I wonder if maybe rooted in that statement, which you translated, or your other contacts with artists there. You know, or the listenership of this podcast is mostly North American, um, but it's international. Uh, do you think that there's something that um, artists in Ukraine uh, want people in the broader world to hear um, about what's going on and uh, anything that you sense that they would want our listeners to know? I think that it's hard for me to distinguish what I imagine they would want people to know and what I want people to know. <laughs> so I will probably go with the latter and hope that it is aligned with the former, um, which is that Ukraine has an incredible, rich culture of theater and performance right now and um, has been building something that is of global relevance in the sense that they are working on, yes, as you say, Sarah, like community-engaged performance, right? It's something that we're all familiar with. And yet their capacity to use those forms and to innovate those forms to make material changes in people's everyday lives is to a greater extent than I have previously witnessed. And I think that all of us as theater academics and as theater makers have a lot to learn from what has happened there in the last eight years and have the opportunity to support those same theater makers moving forward in an attempt to rebuild. Molly, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and sharing with our listeners everything that you know about the situation in Ukraine. And um, um, I hope I'll, I'll get to talk to you again soon. Um, and and we, we, we hope for peace very soon. Thanks so much. And thanks again for having me. It's great to talk to you. So for our last topic, um, we uh, checked out the, the series Station Eleven on HBO Max. Um, uh, it's a miniseries. It was created by Patrick Somerville, adapted from a novel by Emily St. John Mandel, stars Mackenzie Davis as an actor making her way with a Shakespearean troupe uh, in a world that 20 years previously was devastated by an apocalyptic flu pandemic. Uh, so you can see sort of the, the, rel, uh, the rel, relevance there. Um, Harvey, you, you recommended that we do a, a, a segment on this, and I'm grateful that you did. I've really enjoyed what I've seen of the series so far. But um, would you tell us just a bit more about the series for people who haven't seen it and, and why you think ONTAP listeners should check it out? Yeah, absolutely. So it's Station Eleven's based upon uh, the book, same title. Uh, and what I found delightful and fascinating and somewhat surreal uh, when I was watching it earlier this year, it's at the turn of the year, was the idea of watching mm -hmm. a pandemic during a pandemic in which theater looms prominent. Uh, it's a story in which mm -hmm. theater is at the heart of uh, Station Eleven. Uh, and to give you a sense of it, in the novel, the opening lines read, and this is the first two sentences, uh, the king stood in a pool of blue light unmoored. This was act four of King Lear, a winter night at the Elgin Theater in Toronto. Uh, and so for those of you who uh, watched the, 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 the film version of it, as opposed to uh, the, the, the series, you might notice that you know, sort of 
I think this is a, a pandemic-related <laughs> issue as well. Uh, there was a shift in location from Toronto to Chicago, uh, two cities that I adore. Uh, anyway, um, you know, the book, and I'm going to give you a sense of which, which to, to avoid too many, you know, um, spoilers, but it's inevitable at this point. Mm-hmm. I just want to give you the first paragraph of the book jacket so you can get a sense of of what's going on. Uh, it's Kirsten Raymond. Uh, we'll never forget the night that Arthur Leander, the famous Hollywood actor, had a heart attack on stage during a production of King Lear. That was the night when a devastating flu pandemic arrived in the city. And within weeks, civilization as we know it came to an end. And then it continues on. Uh, and what really drives um, uh, this book is the way in which sort of theater and Shakespeare uh, persist uh, and survive the disruptions of, of, of a plague. Uh, and that reminds me of, of like the literature and scholarship on Shakespeare in terms of Shakespeare writing, um, you know, sort of during his lifetime in which his lifetime was marked uh, by uh, the threat of plagues and the closures of theaters. Uh, and along those lines, you know, sort of Stephen Greenblatt uh, in a May issue, a May 2020 issue of The New Yorker, uh, sort of opened his sort of study of Shakespeare and plagues by saying, indeed, Shakespeare lived his entire life in the shadow, uh, in the shadow of the bubonic plague. Uh, and then more recently, uh, Andrew Dixon in The Guardian wrote uh, to, to really sort of call into mind and call out sort of how extremely present plagues and pest, uh, plagues were in everyone's life. Uh, between 1603 and 1613, when Shakespeare's powers as a writer were at their height, the Globe and other London playhouses were shut for an astonishing total of 78 months, which if you think about it, it's like six and a half years, uh, more than 60% of the time. You know, So what I just found fascinating about Shakespeare and theater and Station Eleven and on all of this is how when we're dealing with a world in which theaters were closed down and shuttered, uh, for nearly two years, uh, when we're thinking about the resilience of theater, when we're talking about the emotional toll, the anxiety, the stresses of of a pandemic. It all sort of aligns and hits the buttons for for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my introduction. But let's 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 open it up. Uh, so, Sarah, panel, what were your experiences encountering a pandemic story during a pandemic? Okay, so what I loved about the series. Um, were the ways in which it reflected and pointed to what many of us kept saying, probably ad nauseum during the pandemic, about theater being important. And and it reminded us that theater is sometimes about a building and sometimes about a budget, but sometimes it's about a, you know, a group of kids putting on a show. And there was an article actually, which I found very interesting in, I think it was in Slate, where it 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 was critiquing that kind of sentiment in the in the show for its I think its naivete and its sort of slightly maudlin quality of the importance of theater. And but what I would say is actually more interesting, and, and if people have seen and watched and enjoyed Station Eleven, I really recommend reading the novel, not just to get its original more important context in Toronto, but uh, but also the the which is very specific because some of it happens in my neighborhood, but but also the um, it is it is less sentimental about theater. It is much more critical about theater. <clears throat> There's actually a wonderful line where one of the characters uh, talks about growing up as the child of academics and and saying. So I had a front row for that horror show and then <laughs> and then going on. And and what the what the 
for me, theater in the novel, and I think it, it changes a little bit in the, in, the, in the television series, although if you're looking for it, it's there, is that what's important about theater is not the kind of group, let's all get together and put on a show. It's that in times of turmoil, theater is always present. Yes. One of the lines in the in the novel that gets repeated in the in the show is there is no past, there is no future. And it's easy to see that as the consequence of trauma. But what it really speaks to, and which you will recall from teaching your intro students how to write an essay about theater, is that it is always present for Hamlet. It is always the now in the context yes. of the of the drama text. And in any show, it is always the now. And so the past is a construct, the future is a projection, but theater-like <laughs> existence is always in, in the present moment. And I think anybody who can draw together pandemics with Star Trek, which is where we yes. get the line, survival is insufficient. And I also recommend, if you're into your intertextual readings, uh, season six, episode two, Survival Instinct from Star Trek Voyager, a classic in Borg uh, uh, <laughs> evolution as well, um, is the way in which it draws together a number of, of, of real concerns, not the least of which is the fact that the flu in the in the novel and in the film or in the TV show is, a, is the Georgian flu and that the Borg in the 1999 episode in which they're debating about is, is survival itself uh, enough and deciding like no is actually also a mediation on the collective versus the individual at the 10 years after the Cold War and thinking about the negotiation. So there's a, there's a way in which it captures any number of really important contemporary issues and, and things of mind, but excavates them through all of these different ideas. And, and in case you think I'm totally off my gourd, uh, Mandel talks about Star Trek and also uh, came to Toronto from a small island off of the coast of, of Western Canada to be a dancer in the Toronto Dance Theater. So I'll, I'll just stop. Here. Phenomenal. I That's love amazing. it. I love it. Uh, Panna, yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts in terms of the persistence of Shakespeare? Uh, I, you so know, when, when, when I, all didn't is lost, me. you still have Shakespeare. <laughs> it didn't bother me. I would be like, oh man, does it have to be Shakespeare? But I loved the. So I will say, I'm only three episodes in. Um, don't worry about spoiling things, but uh, so far there have been no big spoilers. Um, I've really enjoyed the show and. Um, you know, I like to play the character of the Shakespeare crank. Um, but one of my reactions from watching the first couple episodes was, this looks great. Like, I would love to see uh, this production of Hamlet, you know. Of course, it's it's one of these things where the production team for the show is amazing. So they can create the sets and costumes out of whatever's lying around with this incredible artistry. And if we indeed survived a, a cataclysmic, uh, apocalypse, a cataclysmic pandemic, and then we're producing Shakespeare, it wouldn't look quite that good. Maybe there wouldn't be a Laurie, Perry, Laurie Petty uh, character, a brilliant genius composer just wandering around with nothing nothing on her mind but making the perfect score to every <laughs> Shakespeare production. Um, I found it very charming. I, I'll say that I was sort of, you know, I, I experienced it as one of a category of the sort of uh, post uh post-pandemic apocalypse. So there's The Walking Dead, there's The Stand, if you read C Stephen King, um, and of course, Contagion uh, more recently. And, and one of my experiences of this was 
thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm ready. Maybe I'm ready for a show about a pandemic that kills everybody. Um, I have not yet two years into this revisited the, the Steven Soderbergh contagion. Cause it just felt like it'd be too much. Um, two years on watching this, uh, it, 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 I love, I, I loved the first few episodes. There's a heartbreaking moment in the second episode where the young, uh, protagonist, when she's an eight year old learns about the death of her parents from this bizarre text message. And it just gutted me. It was so tough, but it was such great drama. The show is so well-crafted. Um, so I want to keep watching and I'll say just to go back to my, you know, the initial, uh, comments that unlike the walking dead, the stand in which the sort of post-apocalyptic world is mostly about violence and survival. Um, there's violence and survival in this show of that type, but I, I, I find the idea of, of looking at the other aspect of what life would be like, what are people going to get busy doing? Um, uh, and of course they would get busy putting together some, something to see, something to listen to. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm really taken with the show. I, I recommend it. I'm excited to watch the rest of the 10 episodes. And, will, and Sarah, kudos for citing chapter and verse of the specific episode of Voyager where they revisit the board. That's, I think we need to do a special episode of like theater, if, theater instances of theater in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> we can put this together. I There's would so enjoy that. <laughs> Harvey, you're a bit of a, you're a, bit of a, a trucker, right? Oh, I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've seen every, what, star, original Star Trek, every Next Generation and some Enterprise and some Voyager. Um, yeah. 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 We can get to work on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is great. What is the holodeck? I mean, the holodeck <laughs> is a big theater. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, that's wonderful. I really appreciate you recommending it. And I had no idea about the sort of intertextuality and the special relationships to Toronto and everything. I will say, if you're, um, if you're a person who watches the, the series and then you, which I did, and then I got to admit, I read the novel afterwards. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. thinking that I would get all sorts of great insight into like, um, you know, the uh, Jeevan relationship with the little girl uh, who's the protagonist. Um, you know, you know, I'll just say, you know, without any spoiler, you're going to be uh, uh, surprised, you know, by the restructuring that, you know, rather the structuring that actually exists, you know, in the novel and how that whole story narrative shifts quite um, dramatically, <laughs> you know, wow. Um, wow. in the uh, novel versus the series. So I think there's that. What are your thoughts in terms of imagining society where there's no technology, you know, where, you know, there's essentially, you know, minimal electricity? Sounds great. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, uh, <laughs> there's no podcast. I don't know. It, <laughs> no, there's no, no podcast. No. Well, I'm, I'm writing my chapter on Rousseau for my social theory book. And so it's, it's easy to get seduced by the idea of a sort of you know, back to basics, uh, primitive existence uh, narrative. The truth is I would miss my electronic gadgets and, and the facility of, of networked communication greatly. Um, but it's a, it's a broader debate, you know. The, the truth is that to get to any sort of situation where you could enjoy the tranquil, relatively non-distracted moments that happen in that show, you'd also have to go through just an unbelievable amount of loss and suffering. So <laughs> I think I'd prefer to keep the gadgets and the electricity. Well, I think also what the what the show stages really well, and I, I would say Mr. Burns does this too, mm -hmm. is to remind yeah. us how much work living is mm -hmm. and how much labor is required when 
when you don't have so many of the conveniences. And there's a yeah. there's a couple of lines in the novel. One is where they talk about um, I don't think you're there yet, panel, but but there's a there's like an outpost that is spared at an airport. And so they they evolve a society entirely within the, conf the the confines of the airport. And and in the novel that they add the additional detail about one of the chores being lugging water to keep the toilets going, because as long as you're dumping water into the toilets, you can continue to flush. And so there's this there's this kind of wonderful mix of things that we had that worked in one way that have been repurposed in this new. Mm -hmm. So an, another is the fact that, you know, in the in the traveling symphony, the caravans are cars that have been gutted and replaced mm -hmm. with wooden wheels and are pulled by horses. Right. But the cars are mm -hmm. still there. And yep. and at some point, somebody kind of reflects on this. And, and again, this is going to the novel and is a level of interior detail that you can't really represent in the uh, in the in the in the book. But they're they're talking about science. And one of the younger people is asking one of the older people about, well, what about what about this and what about physics and what about this science and the and the and the folks who are older are like I don't know I I wasn't really a science person and and there's like an interior reflection of <laughs> it was quite annoying how little about science these people knew when they had so much <laughs> yeah. access to this thing called the internet and yeah. this kind yeah, yeah, yeah. of wasting of opportunity and lack of appreciation and 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 uh, and a total lack of of preparation and what we would prioritize now if we knew that we might end up there in in 20 years or something like that it it, it did make me think in some ways of of those great civilizations that uh ultimately collapse and then only like small extracts remain, but then like the rest of the humanity is just worse off because of the collapse of, of civilization, right? So if you think about, um, you know, the insights from the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Romans and like all that remains is like this one play here, those plays over there, like, you know, a few, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a few ruins that managed to withstand the centuries, right? And, and, and I think that um, there is that scary realization, at least for me being a person who, um, realizes that if there was complete sort of destruction to occur, I don't, I don't really have any great skill sets. In terms of, you know, could I rewire something? Could I like jerry-rig MacGyver style some sort of solar panel out of like spare parts? No, I, I can't do that. So. Could you hunt with uh, a knife, is, Harvey? Because that's also <laughs> a really important future skill, yeah. right? Well, 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 I think the hope in this is that, um, you know, theater becomes a survival skill, you know, that traveling around and telling stories is uh, uh, what gives meaning existence for many people waiting for the the seasonal visits you know, along the route of the traveling um, symphony. Can I ask a, a yeah. question of, of, of you both? And maybe maybe we can't answer it fully now, but what do you make of the science fiction element? So the title Station Eleven comes from a graphic novel comic book that is created by one of the characters and that becomes a kind of influential, even a guiding text for two, especially two of the younger of the younger characters. Um, and it's this world is space station called Station Eleven in which there is a Doctor Eleven. And in this, particularly in the films, in the TV series, we don't learn very much about that narrative 
or where it mm -hmm. comes from or what it means. What what did you make of that sci-fi element that comes in the middle of all this? Like I said, I'm just three episodes in, so it, it, things are being revealed in pieces, but it does remind me of a kind of narrative of sci-fi um, realism. Um, I'm I'm a fan of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, the sci-fi writer. He wrote a great trilogy on uh, sort of speculative human colonization of or settlement of, of Mars. And he wrote a great, my favorite novel of his is Aurora, and it's about a intergenerational uh, colony ship meant to try to settle a new inhabitable planet, you know, 300 light years away. And sort of the big takeaway of it is, what are we doing? We need to fix the Earth. <laughs> like these ideas that we're going to escape our problems in space and through technology are fan uh, fantasy. And we better get our planet sustainable um, because this stuff is not going to work out for us the way we think it will in space. And so that may or may not be a theme here, but the sort of contraposition of a kind of lonely outside of the world and a sort of calm and desolate space of the imagination and then a very real present earth uh, I was picking up on. Yeah, and, and, for, and for me, it was, um, I think in the series, what I was receiving felt like the emergence of religion. Like, you know, uh, you know mm -hmm. the, like this is, how, this is how cult religions get formed. Right, mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, and and that's supported by the idea that there's, there's the prophet who tells the story based upon this book that uh, invites an imagination of of a space and time elsewhere, you know, led by a figure who is um, compelling, right? You know, and and that was my read of the series, and in the book, if I remember correctly, there's actually uh, moments where scenes are recounted within the book as we're talking about sort of what doctor, what, what, what's happening, what, what Dr. Eleven is doing. Uh, and it's truly the, the land of like the sci-fi fantastical, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's always somewhat for me, at least disorienting. Uh, and, and, and I did, to be honest, I didn't really know what to do with that, that part of it. You know, Sarah, what was your read on that part of it? I, I am still processing, ex except that the connection to Star Trek and these alternate worlds. And so yes. I think there is one way of reading both the novel and the series as ruminations on the kind of world making and alternative reality storytelling that humans tell in order to process trauma. Right. And, mm. and whether that's science fiction or Shakespeare stagings or other kinds of imaginative flights of fancy or immersion within television, as well as memories, there's, there's always this kind of sense of an alternative reality within, within, within the experience of traumatic events. Yes. Um, and that, that gets explicitly reflected in a couple of places, but, but it's really telling that one of the key characters in the novel and, and, and somewhat in the series is Arthur Leander, the, the, the actor who is, is playing Lear at the, at the top of both the book and the, and the series and, and dies of a heart attack. And his narrative or his ruminations on what it feels like to be a popular actor and to become a celebrity who gets remediated through mm -hmm. other kinds of media and other kinds of relationships and, and how one loses a sense of oneself. And so there's a, at one point, one of the characters reflects like, does every actor lose the, the boundary between a performance and, and, and life? 
And I think that in some ways the science fiction is there to show us just another valence or another way in which humans do that and, and to sort of engage in all these different kinds of fantasies. Because as, as nice as it sounds sometimes, nature is brutal, Rousseau. And and it's and there's a real um, there's a real awareness that that our own internal natures are brutal and that those that those manifest and that nature and artifice are always a little bit tenuous because because humans have a kind of inner brutality and so how do we humanize ourselves we do it through storytelling and through community building which is why survival itself is is insufficient. We need something more in order to be fully human. Yes. Wow. That well, was great. Been, that was a great read. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I I loved surprising. it. I am just geeking out yeah. on this on this topic. So thank you very much for the <laughs> opportunity. It. It's a surprisingly capacious discussion of, of Station Eleven. Now I'm ex really excited to read or uh, watch the rest of it and read. Um, so why don't we uh, quickly go through our, our drafts, um, our, our sort of musings, our incomplete thoughts, our, our, our uh, works in progress. Um, I will just say, for me, a, a special experience of the last week was our MFA dance concert that we had here. We have an MFA dance program, and um, this past weekend, the concert was not only the two students who are graduating this spring, but the two students who graduated two springs ago and whose works were in process being rehearsed and then were shut down for the pandemic. And it took me back uh, because it was that first March um, when things were, uh, you know, so disturbing, so upsetting, and these big decisions were being made. And these students said, you know, we will not perform these shows, but we're not content to film them and we're not content just to collect our degrees on the work that we've already done. We want these shows to see, to have an audience. And the department pledged that we would do it as soon as was possible. And it was not possible last March, um, but it was this year. And so I got to see those. Um, and the students, uh, Marcus Johnson and Ashley Tate, they're, they're choreographers, they're, they're MFA dancers uh, from our program. And, and the work was just spectacular and all the more meaningful because it had been on ice waiting <laughs> for two years and then finally got to be shown live. So I really appreciated that. Harvey? Yeah, uh, for me, uh, my draft has nothing to do with my, well, who knows? It, it could be, it, it could inform my scholarship. We'll see, we'll give it some time. But I'm, I'm Oscars inspired because the Oscars were this past Sunday. And I'm thinking about the uh, brouhaha, <laughs> you know, that relates to Will Smith, the actor, um, hitting or uh, open hand slapping Chris Rock, the presenter, comedian, and actor as well, and really trying to figure out how I'm making sense of 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 of, of what I saw, right? And and because it's truly a draft, I don't know. But is it, you know, in this moment yeah. where you know we're in the world thinking about you know Putin and Zelensky, you know, like there, there seemed it almost seemed like a theatrical reenactment in some ways of violating someone else's space, you know, uh, one person, you know, sort of being the aggressor against the comedian, <laughs> you know, Zelensky-esque, as it that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, certainly in a year of conversations around toxic masculinity, uh, you know, what does it mean to have, of, you know, like, you know, sort of this, this sense of aggression occur, you know, or does it get sort of flipped when people talk about, you know, is this what chivalrous acts are, right, in terms of defending his spouse, you know, so I'm trying to figure out that tension between you know what I'm seeing on the screen and the world outside, 
uh, and the many different ways in which people are slicing and reading it. Um, and the mm-hmm. unfortunate part, and this is where it really resonates with my work in terms of black performance uh, scholarship, is that we know that pretty much every, what, 15 or maybe 20 years, uh, you know, an African-American gets recognized for an Oscar. There haven't been that many. Uh, and it's just painful, you know, to think that, yeah. um, you know, forever forward, or at least for the next 10 or 15 years, this is going to be what gets replayed uh, again yeah. and again and again. So that's my draft. Yeah. Well, there, there, I don't want to piggyback too much on it. And Lord knows we could go on and on and on about this particular topic. But there's also speculation that it was staged. There are people posting things online saying, well, it was just too perfect. And it was actually a choreographed Hollywood stage slap. So there's also the, you know, theory that it was fake, you know. Well, that was my thought, too. Was to it, 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 it was a perfectly, yeah. you know, choreographed slap, right? If you think about yeah. just the angle yeah. and the, you know, it, it all looked great. But then it also dawned on me yeah. that, like, both of these people have just been doing staged fights for, <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> like, their repertoire of fighting is careers. probably yeah. actually fight choreography in movies. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I yeah. think where it felt real was the expletives, right? So when Will Smith is shouting on expletives yeah. on live television, like, you knew something yeah. broke. So even if it was staged initially, uh, there's a point where the role play became a bit too real in that moment. Sarah. As I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking again how difficult it is for trained actors to have an authentic moment when a camera is is aimed at them, right? Whether it's intended as that or not. Right. Um, my my draft is uh, is to share something I've I've been reading, um, which is a, a relatively new book by Justin E. H. Smith called The Internet Is Not What You Think It Is. A history, a philosophy, a warning. Uh, so my my younger son is a is a philosophy major, and uh, and I've been trying to drag him into the realm of of contemporary critical philosophy and critical theory, and he is content to remain um, in the land of of Plotinus and uh, <laughs> Aristotle and Plato, which I take as a Especially the Plato, I really, I really take as 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 quite uh, rebellious and um, <laughs> and, a, and a and a and a subtle act of philosophical aggression. Um, but I will, I really, I really like Justin E. H. Smith's work. He also has a, a podcast called The Internet, um, or no, he has a podcast called What Is X, and he has a sub Substack uh, called The Internet, and, and it's he's just a really smart, really really brilliant guy. Um, He's currently professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of, of Paris. He has a number of other books, but, but the, the internet is not what you think it is, really looks at the history of thinking around this idea of connection, but also what he identifies as the attention-seeking industry. Um, and, and he has this wonderful kind of framing of it uh, in which he says, and he's sort of talking about social media and and in our contemporary and in, in the contemporary economy. And he says, this, is, this then is the first thing that is truly new about the present era, a new sort of exploitation in which human beings are not only exploited in the use of their labor for extraction of natural resources, rather their lives are themselves the resource and they are exploited in extraction. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and then he goes on to, to trace the history of thought that has brought us to this moment. But it's quite, it's quite thoughtful. It's, it's quite brilliant. The connections he draws, I find really exciting and interesting. But I, I do think that for those of us in 
theater and performance studies, and I'll just I'll just link those two together to go back to where <laughs> we began this this podcast. This question of attention seeking and an attention commodification uh, is a really critical one, and how that gets replicated and, and represented. So anyway, I, I really recommend it. Smart guy, lots to agree and disagree with there, but uh, that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking about. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, Harvey, uh, as always, it is such a pleasure to get the original band back together on the podcast. Uh, such a joy. Um, I want to thank Molly Flynn again for, for sharing her, her expertise and perspectives with our listeners. Um, and uh, listeners, check us out and we'll have another podcast uh, for you in about a month. On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 